Hi everyone, you're listening to the Multifamily Artist Podcast. I'm your host, Taylor Koo, and this is the show where I interview investors to find out how they found their rhythm and created their own sound investments. Enjoy the show. What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Multifamily Artist Podcast. I'm your host, Taylor Koo, and this is the show where I interview multifamily real estate investors and discuss how they found their rhythm and created their own sound investments. But before we hop into today's show, I want to remind you of today's sponsor. This show is brought to you by PassiveInvesting.com. PassiveInvesting.com is a private equity real estate investment firm focused on institutional quality and multifamily and self-storage assets, and also express car washes in the hottest markets in the United States. PassiveInvesting.com partners with their investors to to provide opportunities to build wealth together by delivering consistent monthly cash flow, capital appreciation, and strong tax benefits. They currently have 1,800 plus passive investors with a 65% repeat investor rate. If you're interested in learning more, head over to PassiveInvesting.com or click on the links in the link in the show notes. You can get more information on investment opportunities, educational webinars, or insightful articles. Reach out and see how, see how they can help you build wealthy real estate. Now, for today's guest, he manages all aspects of Perpetual Wealth's capital's growing portfolio. Before becoming involved with multifamily investing, he was a top broker at the third most competitive residential real estate market in the country, winning numerous awards for production. During this time, he specialized in helping investors acquire long-term projects that would provide favorable cash flow and appreciation. He's got some super cool tattoos and... He can nine times out of 10 probably kick your butt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Please give a warm welcome to Justin Moy. Man, Taylor, I'm excited. Quite the intro. I don't know, man. Put me up, set me up pretty big there. <laughs> I try. And you know what? I was before this, I was also listening to your interview with Ruben, and I didn't realize that you were really into martial arts. Yeah, big time into martial arts. Um, you know, I've taken a little bit of a step back. I used to do some competitive weightlifting as well. And uh, you know, when you are 150 pounder doing powerlifting tournaments, it kind of takes a toll on your body. And then you start doing martial arts after that, uh, that road is generally a little bit short. So, um, mm. you know, I do my best now, but it's definitely tough to keep up. I mean, you now you're doing bigger, bigger things, not bigger things or better things, just different things along with real estate. But I'd love to know just like how you got started into getting into multifamily and just a little bit more about your story. Yeah. I mean, you, you hit a lot of uh, kind of the 10,000 foot view of it. Um, but I'll get into some of the important aspects that pretty much led us here today. So when I was growing up, man, I hated, I hated school. I just couldn't stand it. Couldn't stomach it. Take that school. I hated it all, man. I hated everything about it. Um, (laughs) but my parents being the loving parents that they were said, Hey, you got to go to college. We never went to college. That's kind of the route that everybody goes now. If you want to make good money, go to college. Um, you know, I, I rolled my eyes. I half-assed my way through a semester or two of junior college, uh, the whole time just viciously looking for an out. How can I make a lot of money without going to college? Because at the time, just in my upbringing, that's what my parents told me. My parents didn't make great money. Um, they didn't have college degrees. They made that link and kind of embedded that link in my mind. And it's from a position of love. But I essentially uh, ran into, well, I'm going to join the military. That's how much I hated schools. I would rather go join the military um, and do that. So I joined the Marines and came back 
again, was faced with the dilemma of what do I want to do with my life? Do I want to go to college? No, I don't. I still hated school. Uh, so I wanted to get in some kind of sales role. Now I had a long history of like retail sales and I was always very good at it. I worked at a home gym store and I was like the top salesperson every single time. Um, then I worked at GNC, the supplement store. I was like the top salesperson every single week there. So I thought, okay, this is something that I could do. Um, my sister's boyfriend at the time sold cars and he made good money. And so I thought to myself, I want to sell something uh, and I want to make a ton of money. And in my neighborhood, like you said, the third most competitive market in the country at the time was the East Bay of California, just across the bridge to the east where you're, you're close to there as well. Um, <clears throat> big, big ticket items. So I talked to a real estate agent, literally just like one. And he's like, yeah, the money's fantastic. I mean, I sell two, $3 million homes and I'm making two to 3%. You know, you can do that math there. Uh, good deal. So got my real estate license, jumped in. And like you said, I, I just hit the ground. I loved it. I loved the role. I loved the people. I loved the job. I loved sales. I still love sales. Um, and eventually it just brought me to me being transactional. Now, one thing is, I don't know if a lot of real estate agents listen to the show, but one thing that trapped me in that mindset was to be a, a really good real estate agent to build that book of business. You got to be in the market a, a while. You should stay in the same market, have your same neighborhoods, be really established. And I felt really trapped. I mean, I was in the hometown that I had almost grew up in and I felt like I was locking myself into a career path that in a way would ideally keep me there. And so as life is, you know, you tend to go down paths at different times. I remember I was sitting at home. I was watching a college football game uh, and the, the camera panned over the crowd of the game. And I saw the student section just going crazy. And I think I'd apply to like 10 schools, like within the hour. Because I was like, okay, if I don't go now, why not? That's a life experience that, you know, I want, I'll just do it. Went to college, came back, knew that I wanted to stay within real estate. Um, got into the rabbit hole of financial freedom. Hmm. Uh, got into that rabbit hole. Uh, real estate sales are very transactional. You're always hustling for the next deal. And if you don't get one, then you, you don't get paid. And when I was doing sales, I worked a lot with investors. And I saw how much money they were making on single family homes. Um, and me always kind of wanting that challenge. You know, I, I did that by joining the Marines. I kind of, I always like to push myself and like to see if I can accomplish what, you know, a year or two ago to me seemed unaccomplishable. Mm -hmm. So I, I looked into multifamily and once I read about syndications, I was like, that's it. That's what I'm doing. Both feet pretty much right now. I'm going to do it. And I just jumped in. Wow. And so, you know, I'm curious to know just at least some of those transferable skills that you gained in sales from, you know, I guess even, even all the way down from retail sales and how that then yeah. uh, translated into what you're doing now. <clears throat> Absolutely. So sales is a lot about building connections and understanding how people think and how people feel. I mean, you think of like the no like trust, which drives a lot of the decisions in our lives. Sales is a lot about driving no like and trust just for you as either a person or a brand or a company, whatever the case may be. Um, sales even goes as far as like when in your intro with the sponsor, passiveinvesting.com, hey, we have a 65% reinvesting rate. Okay, that's to build that trust. Okay, other people like them, so I'll like them too. So sales is really about how you make people feel, how you instill surety in their decisions. So there's a really good book on sales and it, it can help anybody in any role. I don't care if you're in sales or not, um, called the, the way, of the, uh, the way of the wolf. 
And it's Jordan Belfort's book on sales. And he describes it as sales is all about taking people on a scale of one to 10 on the surety level. So scale of one to 10, and your, your job is to drive them to be a 10. And that 10 means I am 100% sure that whatever you're telling me about or selling me or pitching me, whatever the case is, I am 100% sure that it will work. And no matter what the price is, if you're 100% sure of it, you're going to do it. I mean, mm-hmm. even think about a gym. Some gyms out there are pretty expensive and some people say it's too much. But if you were 100% sure that gym would get you to your goals in a month or two, it doesn't matter. You would get the abs, you'd get the body you want, you'd feel the way you want, everything. You were 100% sure you would pay almost any price. So sales is about instilling that confidence. And throughout retail sales, throughout real estate, and even throughout the way I conduct business now, I really always take that into heart when I'm having conversations with people. How is this conversation going to make the person I'm talking with and dealing with feel? And how am I going to help guide them through that surety of, let's just call it an invest, making an investment? How can I drive them to being absolutely positive to the most extent we can that this is the right move for them? And sometimes it isn't. Sometimes we part ways as friends if I'm in this role specifically, you know, syndicating. Um, but that's how I kind of see how to, how to use those sales skills and apply it to almost anything that I do today. And, you know, I heard you mention in another podcast how, you know, when you are doing sales and building relationships and, you know, especially in what you're doing now with either underwriting deals or just raising capital from investors, I'm curious to to know some of those differences of when you were selling houses on on the real estate side and then also more of these it, it, it more of these like long-term relationships that you're really having to yeah. sell too. So yeah. Can you highlight some of the differences at least that you've learned and you've observed? Yeah, I have one that comes to mind immediately. It is somewhat from my perspective. And whenever I'm talking to like investors, I always want to see things from their perspective. This one mm-hmm. is, is something that operators like me and you need to understand, but also something that investors need to understand. Yeah. As, as a real estate agent, it's very transactional. I either sell your home or I help you buy the home and that's it. We move on with our lives. If I liked you, I'll continue staying in touch. If we didn't, it's not a big deal. It's about a you know three-month process, maybe a couple, maybe a little bit longer, but it's whatever. I worked with plenty of people in the residential space that I didn't care for, whether they were rude or whether they had unrealistic expectations or whether we just didn't get along personally, mm-hmm. but it didn't matter. I pushed through those things because it's only a couple months process. When it comes to this and what we do here, where sometimes we're holding assets for five plus years, 10, 15 years, whatever the case may be, we cannot have that. I will not tolerate me and me dealing with somebody or somebody dealing with me who doesn't like us or like what we do, or if somebody's rude or something like that, we just won't do it. So I think when you get into something like this, where it's much more relationships, you have to be selective. Us as operators, we have to be selective. There's a lot of investors out there who match our criteria, who are looking to place cash. As an investor, there's a lot of sponsors out there, a lot of great sponsors out there. You don't need to go with a sponsor who you feel, and eh, like, I don't really think I vibe with this person or maybe their company, or maybe they don't look that professional, whatever the case may be, you should be much, much, much choosier when you're getting into something like this that has a much longer term, uh, a much longer term role, really. Yeah. And, you know, 
it and it's okay to be selective when you are on both sides too, especially as an operator and then also as an investor. Is just because I'm you're pretty much married to them for potentially five years. And yeah. there's just that amount of trust that you need to make sure that uh, you trust that they're going to be doing what they're going to be doing. But it's also yeah. just a different layer of trust compared to, you know, on the transactional side versus the this long-term side. Yeah, I agree. And it's, it's one of those things, you know, sometimes the company I worked with that in the real estate sales side, we were the biggest, most well-known company there. So sometimes people would continue to work with us, even if, like I said, the, the, their point person, the broker, they didn't really care for that much, but they said, oh, this company is really big and reputable. I mm-hmm. trust them. Again, that confidence, that surety scale, right? They were more sure in our company than they were with the others. So they went with us. Um, again, you can push through those transactions. And at the end of the transaction, you roll your eyes and say, oh, you know, that Justin, we didn't get along or whatever the case may be. In these, you do not. These, you've got to really be sure of the person, of the company, of who they are. Plus, you can't just get up and leave. If you find a real estate agent and they decide halfway through helping you find a home, hey, I actually don't want to be a real estate agent anymore. I'm going to go do something else. I'm going to sell insurance now. Hmm. That's okay. You just find another one. Your syndicator, your operator cannot just throw their hands up at and five years ago. Exactly. Hey, I'm, I'm kind of oh, over this. I'm, I'm on to the next thing. Um, <laughs> right without having some kind of system or process or team in place to account for that. Some of these larger operations, that's fine. People come and go all the time. Mm-hmm. But if you're like a, a, a mom and pop syndicator, there's nothing wrong with that. But God, I better make sure that you're in this with both feet. And this is your end game. You're not just saving up to go do something else, or you're not going to retire in a year and leave me you know, with somebody else, maybe who I didn't trust with my money in the first place. So Yes, you got to have a much larger understanding of trust and the person in the company. Because like you said, you're getting married here for at least a couple of years. Right. And so, you know, we've, we've touched on just the investor side of building those relationships and the sales that goes behind the investor and, and equity side. But now I'm curious, how does that Diff, like what is the what are the differences when you bring it over to the broker side? Because I can imagine that the sale is a little bit different. You can't come off as like brand new, and you have to also they're probably getting hit up by all these other operators trying to get these deals. So, what has been your experience there? You know, my experience from what I hear from other operators, uh, especially in the beginning, mm-hmm. has been overwhelmingly positive. If I'm being very honest with you, and that comes from a lot of my background in sales and my background as a broker and understanding that their life is hard. As a broker, your life is, is kind of hard and sometimes it sucks. You work a lot without getting paid in the hopes that you get that one client that's going to pay you, you know, more over than everybody else. So when you have that perspective and you understand, hey, these people are, these brokers are hesitant to give you their time because for every one client that they've made a lot of money on, they've spent their time with 80 others who they've never gotten a dime on. And then as they get bigger and more reputable, and those are the ones with deal flow who you want to connect with, they can whittle that down. Some of them don't even need to talk to new people because they just know, hey, for the next 40 years, I'm good. I have my client base and they're going to keep calling me, keep selling and keep buying and they don't need anybody else. So again, I take us to that scale. My goal whenever I talk to a broker, whether they're new or somebody uh, who I continue to follow up with. What their ultimate goal is, if you're, let's say you're, you're looking to buy some multifamily, you want to buy the listings. Again, take them down that surety path. On a scale of one to 10, how confident are they in you and your ability to be a buyer? 
And you can increase that scale for them by a couple of things. First is being confident. I mean, you've got to be confident. Second, don't, don't ever lie. Now that doesn't mean if you're new in the space, you got to come out and say, Hey, John, the broker, this is my first broker call. Can you walk me through multifamily deals in the area? I mean, don't give out the store. Don't lie. If they ask you how long you've been doing it, you know, there's other ways you can word it by saying, Hey, a week, I wouldn't lead with that, but don't lie and be, you know, be educated. So you can talk confidently. You're going to find out that the conversation really has a few angles that they can go. And if you know a few key terms, you're going to get past 80 to 90% of the conversations. So that confidence and just acting like it's business as usual. If you are a very, very, very experienced operator, these things like a small broker call or a check-in or asking for T12 or asking a question about a property is not a big deal to you. So when you call and something's a really big deal to you, to the broker, they know, okay, this person hasn't done this much. This person hasn't ever seen a, a T12 on a 500 unit property. If you're looking and go, wow, a million dollars, you know, don't do that. The, these are just things you have to act like it's business as usual. You've done this before. You've done it a hundred times. So if you have that confidence and you just go in with a good story too, like, hey, if they've been working that market for 20 years, why haven't they ever heard of you? Well, hey, me and my partners actually buy in, you know, Southern California now. We're looking to expand in that state though that you're in uh, just because we're getting priced out a little bit for the returns we want. Perfect. That's a good story. So have that story, have that confidence and don't ever lie, but don't feel like you got to give away the store. So, you know, what's so fascinating about this, and, and this is, and we, I guess we haven't covered this too, but the, you're only 28 years old. And so to have this confidence, <laughs> and, and so just to have this confidence at a young age and just being able to talk to a lot of these people that are probably like double our age. Um, and if you're <laughs> younger, sorry, <laughs> but, but I mean, generally like we're playing in a, in a, in an older generation's game, right? And so where did you learn your confidence and how did you instill your confidence as you were starting to break into this space? Man, so two things was, yeah, the real estate sales, it was the same thing, right? To be in the third most competitive market in the country, you are dealing with generational brokers. Mm. I mean, generational brokers, their pappy did it and their pappy did it and their pappy sold the dirt that the city was built on. And so you have a lot of that uphill battle. I remember I was 20 years old when I sold my first $2 million home, hmm. 20 years old, the seller said, Hey, why don't you come to the, the winery with us? It was in a winery town and come celebrate. We'll get to a bottle of wine. I had to say no, because I couldn't even get wine <laughs> with them. Drink. Right. I couldn't. And they, you know, they were 40 yeah. 50 years old, whatever the case may be enough to have a couple multi-million dollar homes. Mm -hmm. So I've always had that uphill battle. And I can tell you, it, it could be one of the biggest limiting beliefs that you have. And we as people, this sucks to say, but we as people generally, until you change your mindset, are always looking for excuses, the easy way out. You got to break that mindset. A good way to have an excuse, a good, easy way out, why you may be not getting the traction you want is, oh, well, I'm young. They're not giving me the time of day because I'm young. That's all crap. I mean, first of all, nobody's ever really asked me how old I am in a way, in, in a negative way, like, Hey, like, who are you? How old are you kind of thing? Mm -hmm. Right. And that does tie into confidence, but it also ties into just kind of knowing what you're doing and just acting like you've been there before. Um, it's a huge limiting belief. And it's something that anybody who's new in the space or, or a little bit younger, maybe they're not in real estate, maybe they're doing something else. That's kind of, you know, a good old boys network. 
your age will matter 0% to the people that matter. The only people who are going to hold your age against you, just let them go off into the distance. I mean, they're so set in their ways. That generation has gone soon. Yeah. They suck. Yeah. yeah. Take that. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, I mean, it's, it is, you know, nobody's going to hold yeah. that against you. If anything, if you're ambitious and you have that fire and that passion, in you, they're going to see themselves in you and it might even help you out a little bit. Yeah. Using it to, to your advantage and just leveraging the fact that you are where you are and, and, and moving forward yeah. no matter what. It, it is. It is. And then another thing too, is I would recommend, I mean, get good at speaking, public speaking specifically. Mm. When I was in the Marines, a lot of people don't know this, but I actually gave presentations. So if you ever see a movie and I can't think of what I'm talking about, but there's somebody up there with a screen behind them, they're pretty much giving a PowerPoint and they're saying, we should attack from here at this angle, doing this, this is a map. There's usually always a map on the screen, right? Um, that's what I did. So again, I was in my younger twenties and was giving presentations to high ranking officials. And sometimes I didn't know what the hell I was talking about. I mean, I was like 20 years old or 22 or whatever the case may be. And these are people who've been in the military for years and years and years. Mm -hmm. And I was telling them what to do. And so a big thing when you're going through that learning process is you've got to be confident. If you're not confident up there, they're going to doubt every word you say. And if they doubt every word you say, they're going to tear you apart. So it really instilled that conversational confidence. One of the best things that's going to help you in every facet of your life, business and, prof and uh, professional and personal, learn to be a good and confident speaker. Hmm. Now, in, I'm, I'm curious with the, and, and now this is more, I guess, getting to a niche of our uh, military listeners wow. with what are, what were some of those life lessons and skills and experiences that you um, really like took and, and how that translated and, and carried into your career that uh, could inspire anybody that is listening then. Yeah. I would say another thing, it, it really opened my eyes to other limiting beliefs that I had, because mm -hmm. again, in that same scenario, here I was a really young kid in my eyes, in my own eyes, giving advice to people who, in my opinion, were so much above me that there was no way they should ever have listened to me. That's just mm -hmm. in my mind. Right. But then you see them actually take that information you're giving take your advice and then take action on it. And you're like, wow, this person, you know, really has trusted me, has faith in me. You know, maybe I do belong here. Then you see things go well. And then it happens again and again and again. And so it really crushes a lot of those limiting beliefs, things like your age or your experience level. Because if you, again, know what you're doing and are confident in you and what you're saying, people are going to take you for it. And so one thing is the limiting beliefs around those. Another is I realize that, you know, a lot of people aren't as big and scary as you might make them out to be. Uh, I was in the Marines and I wanted to join the Marines because I wanted to look back on my life and say, I did the, the hardest one, whatever, looking back, which it sucked, right? It sucked. I don't say that to brag. I say it because you, I look at Marines before when, and I thought, oh my goodness, like they are the most hardcore, like they are killers. They are ruthless. They are just the best of the best of the best, man. That's not always the case. <laughs> you know, that's not always the case. Marines are just people just like us. Uh, they have regular jobs, just like us. You could be in the Marine Corps and process payroll as your job. You know, you're not always a cold hearted killer out there sneaking behind enemy lines and swimming two two miles or whatever the case may be. So mm -hmm. to me, it really leveled people out to where titles and experiences and people in conventionally held upper roles, like let's say a broker that you're talking to, mm -hmm. 
those don't really intimidate me anymore because I've seen the hardest of the hardest. I've seen badass Marines and badass guys in the Navy. And at the end of the day, like they're just people just like us. So that experience really helped shape that. I, I really strip away the intimidation that a lot of roles might put on some people's names. Got it. Now, switching gears then and, and now talking a little bit more about, you know, perpetual wealth. And I'm curious how you got started with them and how did you meet them? Did, were they in the military beforehand or yeah. were no, there was no, no. a mentorship group or? Yeah. Yeah. So I am really, really big on formal coaching, mentorship, or whatever you say. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's great if you can get it for free. I mean, if you find somebody where a bigger pocket or somebody, you know, who's willing to mentor you for free, I think that's great. Uh, but for me, I wanted to pay someone so that I could say, Hey, you need to answer my questions. Right? <laughs> I don't feel like a, like a burden. And I'm not saying you're a burden if you have a mentor for free, but for me, I just thought if I pay, I'm going to get what I pay for. And whether it's true or not, you know, you can pay for mentorship. You get free mentorship. One thing that I'll say is, when it comes to information, if you pay for it, you're going to listen. Like how many times have you scrolled through Instagram or TikTok or, or something and you see like a cool idea, whatever it is, a side hustle, a, a wholesaling tip, whatever it is. And you go, oh, that's cool. And then you scroll past it. Now, if you paid like 10 grand for that piece of information, you are going to do it. Like you are going to take that and execute on it. So in my opinion, it was important for me to pay. It's not important for everybody. So I was in a, a formal mentorship program. Um, for my first year. And through that came access to certain events, uh, live and virtual. And I had met my team. First one is my mentor was the mentor who I actually paid in the program. Um, we just clicked. We liked each other. I liked his style. He liked you know, the, my work ethic, stuff like that. Uh, and then we met another guy through um, networking events that the group had. So again, for me, it was important to go to those events to meet other people who had also paid money uh, to take their careers seriously. So again, you can meet people through free events, but just like the mentorship, if you pay, those people could be a little bit more serious about their goals. So my mentor, and then through some paid networking live events, uh, and we clicked, we did a couple deals together, and then we're off to the races. Wow. And, you know, I actually, I love the fact that you said that too, because I know on bigger pockets, sometimes there can be a lot of slander saying like, oh, these mentors and mentorship groups, they're just a lot of money and you're not really going to get any, anything from it. I think on the single family side, it, you, you can, you can definitely work your way around it. But then when it comes to like scaling up on the multifamily side, there's so many moving parts where it's like, you yeah. need somebody to, to watch your back. Definitely. Yeah. I, I, I mean, it is what it is. Like a lot of people will say, well, don't pay for mentorship. I've seen this a lot. Well, don't pay for mentorship. You get all that information for free. Like, yeah, probably. I mean, if I, if I listen to podcasts every single day, if I read books every single day, if I go on bigger pockets for an hour a day and read blogs, probably, or I could pay whatever, 10, 20, 30, up to 50 grand for some of these programs and text somebody who's been doing it for 30 years and say, Hey, what should I do about this situation and get a perfectly tailored answer to me. So money is just a factor of time. If you want to put in the time instead and just learn manually bit by bit, bite by bite through different podcasts, things like that, you could do it. It's just going to take you more time. And I was in a position where luckily I was very fortunate where I could just afford to, to buy the time. I'll just pay for the mentorship. It had formal training. And then I can just ask somebody the very specific questions that I have as, a, as 
I continued my real estate journey. So no, you don't need it. Do I think they're a ripoff? Absolutely not. I'm sure there's maybe some programs better than others, but you got to put in the work too. No program is going to say, hey, just because it's a lot of money, you're going to be super successful. You probably will be because if you're willing to pay a lot of money, you're probably really serious about it uh, and you'll meet other serious people and you're going to surround yourself with very, very serious and successful people. And that's a big important part of it as well. So there's a lot of benefits of it. Uh, at the end of the day, money's a factor of time. Yeah, and I chose absolutely. to pay for it. I agree. I agree. And so now what is what, what type of assets does perpetual wealth go after? What market are y'all in? Yeah. In, in case yeah, you know we, somebody wants to invest with y'all. Yeah, absolutely. So right now we have a big portfolio in Michigan. Um, we're not pushing there as much. We get a couple of good de- deals there. One of my mentors lives there, uh, knows the market super, super well. We're pushing really heavy now into like Kansas City and surrounding areas. Uh, we see a lot of great trends. I live out here in the Phoenix area. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing about us is we don't like big, sexy places like mm-hmm. Boise, Phoenix, Texas, Austin. We like the boring investments in stable and great markets that are growing, but we're not getting pushed into a, a three cap property. Um, we like a little bit more on the bone for that. So we like to invest in multifamily properties. They do have a value add component to it. Class BC properties where we're going in and doing some heavy lifting, refining our, our cash and our investors out. And then we like to have some cash flow. We like to cash flow through it. Maybe we refi it a couple more times and then sell it off. Uh, or maybe we sell it if the market's super hot, but we like to see some cash flow because the biggest thing for us is I believe that investment should impact your life today. One of my biggest pet peeves about you know, the, the quote unquote conventional investing where you have a 401k or an IRA, you got this big stack of money for you, waiting for you when you're 65, is it doesn't impact your life today. If I have an investment, I want it to impact in terms of cash flow. That's what it is with real estate. Um, so to me, this is a really, really, really good method of getting cash flow that not only gives you, like you mentioned in the beginning of the show, that slow, steady appreciation of assets, but also cash flow that you don't need to have a capital event to recognize having some, some gain that's going to impact your life. So we like multifamily, uh, you know, 50 plus units. We like a little bit bigger uh, with some value add to it. And we like the Midwest markets, specifically we're looking at Kansas city right now. Kansas city right now. And you have an asset in Michigan and, you know, for, I guess like for people that are in California, cause that is where majority of my listeners are from. Yeah. Sometimes they get into just this mindset of saying like, Oh, why would anybody want to move over to Kansas city or Michigan? Like why, why should I invest there? I'd love to hear like your take on it and some of the business philosophy that you guys have in terming these assets. So if you look at Kansas city, I I have kind of this joke uh, where I I call it the Phoenix of the Midwest. Mm. It's a little bit of a joke because again, it's going back to, Hey, I, I don't like those big, sexy areas. California is a big, sexy area. You know what that means? Tons and tons and tons of competition. And a lot of your return, again, isn't on that cash flow. It's on that capital event that you almost feel sure that it's going to appreciate. I don't like that play. Um, I like to have benefit now. And so if you look at the population and the growth trends of Kansas City, it's very, very slow and steady in terms of growth of employment, growth of salaries, uh, and a restriction of housing. So we see a lot of the opportunities that Phoenix would have had, you know, 10, 20 years ago in Kansas City, 
Um, and if you are, yeah, if you're, if you're living in, like I call the coastals, New York and California, where statistically most people live, you're, if you want cash flow assets, those are tough. You got to get something. You really, really, really have to find a diamond there. There's a lot of competition. Another thing that I like from a business mentor of mine was when your competition zigs, you zag. Everybody's going to flood California. Everybody's flooding Phoenix. Everybody in Tucson, Arizona as a whole, everybody's flooding Texas. I don't want to go there and dilute my returns because we're getting outbid by you know, a million bucks. Hmm. And to get competitive, we have to bid more, take less cash. We like markets that are stable and strong, but give us enough meat on the bone to where we're not getting absolutely drowned out, like in a lot of those big coastal areas. Got it. And so, um, you know, now I guess going like straight into examples, then I'd love to hear just more about this, this property in Michigan, like how you guys found it. Um, yeah. How you guys yeah, found it, how you guys find, finance it, et cetera. Yeah. So we actually have a more recent one. Um, oh, okay. We have one in St. Louis County, which is in Missouri. So if you look at you know, where Kansas City is, it's so, two cities really in, in Missouri, Kansas City, and there's St. Louis and St. Louis County. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we have this property in St. Louis County and we are stabilizing it currently. So we bought it actually distressed. Now, a lot of people, if they're familiar with the multifamily space, once you get to a certain size, you're typically dealing with brokers. Right. It's not as common for somebody with a, I would say 50 plus unit building to not get a broker to list their property with them. So our acquisition strategy is almost exclusively to brokers. I mean, we're not sending out mailers. I hear they work. I don't know. I just don't think that's our game. Um, we solicit brokers almost exclusively. That's part of my role here. And so it's following up brokers constantly, letting them know that we're here, we're here to play, we're here to buy. Um, finally, it hits off. And broker calls me. There's a 40 unit property that is what he said, hairy, uh, which is good for us, right? I mean, we, we want that. We want some heavy lift. Mm. We go there, and yeah, it was it was a little bit hairy. A lot of boards on the windows, uh, a lot of notices of con- condemnation. Um, needed everything: roof, concrete, foundation. Needed all the whole thing. Ended up buying it at an incredible price, bought it for about a million bucks for 41 units. And have a six hundred thousand dollar capex budget into it. Um, when we are stabilized, it should appraise the appraisal. The the stabilized appraisal came back at about two point four, two point five. Hmm. So really, really incredible opportunity that we had just closed on. It was our first in Missouri and some of those newer markets that we were looking at. We pushed out of uh, pushing through into into newer markets, um, and it was bridge. I mean. Agencies won't touch those things yeah. by a mile. So we found a small bridge lender, closed on it, and then we're continuing to do the rehab, uh, getting some of those fi- those first leases in now. We've closed on that property around Christmas. Um, so this is like recent, recent. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very recently. Uh, and so we, we're getting to work right away, getting starting to get some leases in there now uh, on our way to stabilization. Sweet. And then how long are you projecting to, to hold, the, hold the property? So that one's tough because... It factors down really to where we want to put our focus and time and our investors' focus and time. Hmm. That's a property that's out in St. Louis County. St. Louis County, which is a little bit different than the city, the county is a little bit further out, can be a great area to invest in. There's a lot of little hidden you know, neighborhoods and other sides of the county that are very, very good. One of our partners actually lives in St. Louis. So it can be a great spot. But our big focus is Kansas City and those surrounding areas. 
So when I think of how we build this business, and this is important for investors as well, you want to know if your sponsor has scale in an area. If we are able to acquire more in St. Louis County, then we'll probably keep it and continue to cash flow the asset. If we don't, then we'll most likely sell it and get out of it so we can have more focused efforts in the Kansas City area. Um, reason I say as an investor, you want to pay attention to that as well is naturally, if you're investing in the one asset that's sort of outside of your sponsor's kind of radius or range or where they typically work, they just may not have the infrastructure or quite honestly, the time or capacity to get out there as much as they, they can for their other properties that are maybe concentrated in, let's say, Kansas City. Um, you know, To go out to St. Louis for one property is a three and a half hour drive one way. Can they get out there as often as they can check in on the properties in Kansas City? Just by a time, no matter how much they care about you and your investment, it's just a time thing. They just can't. So it depends on how we're able to scale that area. Got it. Got it. Got it. No, that's, 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 that's fascinating. And it also sounds like you guys are building momentum and you guys have a lot of different options that you can play when the years do come. And, you know, I'm excited to see what is in store for you and perpetual and perpetual wealth. Hey, I, I appreciate it. You know, uh, same for you guys as well. Um, first of all, great. I come from a marketing background, amazing domain. Uh, I think I've said that to you. <laughs> incredible domain name. Can't can't discount that. But uh, I get some of your investment opportunities as well, and excited to continue to see see you guys grow too. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. And so, if if people want to reach out to you, learn more about you, and then also, I didn't even mention this as well. He Justin hosts a great podcast as well, and you know, definitely give it a listen. I. It's uh, building passive income and wealth through real estate. He has a lot of great guests on there, a lot of short little snippets too that are like power episodes as well. So yeah. definitely check that out. Had you on there. Great guests. Uh, your episode's still in the queue. So yes, definitely some great guests. If you like this show, you're going to like that one. Uh, yeah, you can check out the podcast. That's another great resource. Again, you know, guys like us, our goal is to educate, um, mm-hmm. purely educate. And, and to me, it's like if people knew about what we do, more people would do it. I don't think there'd be a single person who wouldn't participate in some fashion. So that's the goal is to educate. If you want to learn more about investing actively, passively, whatever the case may be, uh, head to thedefinitiveguidebook.com. Download my free book, The Definitive Guide to Building Generational Wealth and Passive Cash Flow Through Multifamily Real Estate. Very long title, not as long of an ebook, a lot of big highlights for you there. Um, and you can reach out to me through my contact information on the website as well, or justin at perpetualwealthcapital.com. Those will all be in the show notes. Thank you so much, Justin. Appreciate your time. And then also listeners, stay in uh, stay in tune and get ready for the action items episode that's coming out on Friday. So thanks again, Justin, for, for hopping onto the show. We appreciate you. Of course. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much, everybody. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you got any value out of the show, I'd greatly appreciate if you leave a rating and review on iTunes to help others receive that same value. If you're looking to learn more on how to passively invest in apartment buildings or self-storage assets, click on my link in the show notes to learn more. Thanks and I'll see you next time.